0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Top Rank Podcast. I am your host, Rami Rank. With us today is Natasha Pearl Hansen. Natasha is a comedian, actress, writer, director, and producer. She travels all over the world performing stand-up and is also the creator and host of the Future Role Model Podcast. Natasha's first comedy special, I was supposed to get married today, is going to be dropping very soon, and it's an absolute honor to have you here today. How are you doing, Natasha?
1: I'm doing good. I'm, I'm good. It's so good to see your face. <laughs> it's good
0: to see yours, too. I mean, nobody's <laughs> going to see our faces in this thing, but it's very good to see yours. It's been, it's know, been a long it, time. It really I have to admit, so this interview is actually one of the hardest ones I've ever prepped for because you've got so much going on as far as life and career from, you know, series to books to your stand-up, you know, that we're not <laughs> going to be able to cover everything. So I just want to do like the big broad strokes. And so to start, let's just start at the very beginning. And you've attributed sure. the start of your comedy career to when you were 14, your high school ambassador to Europe, and you did all of this journaling on the trip. Now, it, it basically just funny stories of what had happened, but had you journaled before, or was this just, you just started doing this?
1: No, that was such a specific, you know, you look back on these different moments of your life that are very defining. That trip... Um, <laughs> I wanted to go on this trip so bad. My cousin had done it a couple of years before in Australia. It was a student ambassador program. You had to submit and get accepted. And I did. I was straight A student and my family didn't have the money to send me. So in order to go, I had to get up this. I was in eighth grade the year before I went. I had to get up and feed veal calves here in Wisconsin where I'm currently quarantined and uh, do that before school when it was pitch blackout and I had to earn all the money myself. It was like $4,500 I needed to go. Um, yeah, so I, I really put some work in. So it was the first really amazing experience I had ever had, my first overseas experience, and I earned it myself. So when I got there, you know, I, I it was kind of like this amazing let loose kind of time for me for the first time in my life. I was 14. And they handed us these little notebooks and they were like, journal, journal your experience. And I I didn't know what that meant. I had never really kept a diary or anything. So I was staying up every night and writing like 10, 20 pages to the point that every roommate that I kept getting randomly assigned would start reporting me to the chaperones and be like, Natasha writes a lot. And I was writing very detailed stuff about the day and yeah. This it was, sounds like serial
0: killer obsession level of writing every night. I mean, like, it's I like loved it with your notebooks I, and everything. Like
1: <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I'd always been a very studious, you know, when you give me a task, I'm very thorough, um, but I didn't know how much I was gonna find my voice on that trip. Because instead of writing about the very normal things, like, today we went to the Basilica of St. Peter and blah, blah, blah. I was writing about, like, meeting people and language barriers and relationships and pranks we would play on each other because we were 14. Right. And um, halfway through our trip, our chaperones collected those journals just to, like, see if we were – And and I almost almost got kicked off the trip because I was writing about some of the crazy stuff we were doing, which was just 14-year-old kind of stuff
0: why would they kick you off just for writing what's, what's going on and what's in your head? Like that, that's ca- a little extreme.
1: Well, they, they sat me down and it was four chaperones and 32 kids. So imagine. Okay. And they, um, they were, they were put, they were taken aback by the fact that I wasn't writing about the art and this architecture and I remember sitting across from them and having this really vivid thought of like, why would that upset you? Where we learn all this kind of stuff in history books. Like it should really be the interactions with right. the people. Those can't be documented. Those can't be replicated. Yeah, and you're I learned about I, life now. Yeah. And, and I argued that and they were really impressed with my firm points. And they were like, that's a very valid point. You, you can write about whatever you want. Go, go ahead. And so then I kept that. And then after that trip, I kept keeping little notebooks on me and journaling and documenting funny moments throughout my life that then became my books of thought.
0: Well, and then you kind of become like almost locally famous is the way you've described it you know, from your journals (laughs) where like, 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 and and look, you know, I, I get Like when I was like, you know, 14, 15, I would take like, you know, pop songs and I would just, you know, switch them to filthy lyrics and like, you know, my friends would just have me, you know, quote unquote perform them. But like, I never got invited to parties because they were that (laughs) good. So like, that's kind of impressive. Uh,
1: You know, it was, it was pretty fun. Like I, I realized my entertainment value and my storytelling ability is pretty young after that. And um I think that's where I started to get my comedy voice early. I didn't know I was gonna become a stand up comic and in and, and work in entertainment, but it was very clear from an early age I was a documented storyteller. Like you know, it became easy for me once I started stand up to realize that I was gonna be myself on stage hundred percent and really tell. Genuine stories based on my life,
0: but you didn't take you know the the stand up path immediately no. because you know from what I understand you you went to University of Minnesota, you go in pre med mm-hmm. and then you take a very hard left turn, <laughs> move back home, and save up so that that way you could you know go to second city and learn improv yes, so that okay, so <laughs> what barrier in the road was there that you just swerved off to go do this because that's a really it's a big, big jump.
1: jump, yeah, um yeah, I mean, there was a number of things I was I was, like I said, I was a straight-A student, so uh, the pre-med thing just seemed the right choice. I, w- I, w- I loved science. I loved math. I was so good at both of them. And so I, like, aced biology, aced all this stuff, and, and watched a couple of videos in some of my medical classes that really grossed me out. I was like, oh, I don't know if I like this blood and gut stuff. Um, yeah. But I was also a theater minor. I had never... I'd been in dance my whole life and, and done, um, I was a teacher's assistant for a speech class in high school. So I would do the speeches for all the students before they'd have to write their own. Um, mm-hmm. so I was really comfortable performing, but I didn't think it was an actual path you could go down. And so I secretly was taking a theater minor. I didn't tell any of my friends. Um I and so I had all these Did you
0: like wear a disguise when you went down well, there? I mean, it was knows. University of Minnesota
1: like 50,000 kids nobody's you know I I would tell them I yeah. when you're going to class you just go to class you know nobody really is like let me let me hear about your biology test you know nobody cares um yeah. so uh so I discovered theater kids and part of it I liked and part of it I was like flabbergasted by how weird the experience was like I had never been surrounded by theater kids like that before. And how I thought, I thought medical students were serious, but theater kids were like serious. Oh, and yeah. so oh, yeah. <laughs> I was doing a lot of comedic pieces in those classes and the kind of the culmination of the two was when I had seen that video um, about, you know, breakages and, and bad injuries. And we were gearing up for summer break and Then I I had forgotten to prep. I was preparing for a big final in one of my um, science classes. And I forgot to write an entire speech for my Shakespeare class. And they were alphabetically calling us up to do our speeches by last name. So that day, I got to lecture hall. And in front of 300 people, they called H's. Right. So I had to go up and deliver this speech about a Midsummer Night's Dream. And I made up the whole thing. I'm I winged it
0: how'd you do on that
1: awesome and that's what I'm getting to like my my um professor came up to me after and she yelled at me like pretty fiercely for what felt like about a minute but I'm sure it wasn't very long and she was like you don't mess with Shakespeare essentially she just kept saying that over and over again But then she told me, I've never (laughs) seen somebody wing a speech like that and do such a good job. You should really consider doing improvisation. And I had never heard of improv. I didn't even know what it was. So that summer, I moved back to Madison and and was living with a friend and um, went on Google. That was like when Googling things was brand new. (laughs) And I Googled improv and I saw that Chicago Second City had the biggest improv in the country and it was like a really close drive. And so I started taking classes. So when
0: you want to go to like Second the, City, I mean, do you just go and sign up or do you have to audition to I get into it? Like what, what is that process? Cause
1: yeah, th- that's so like a lot of huge people there, that come out of Second City. The training City, center you know, including is huge there now. Yeah. So it, I, I don't know how it works. I'm sure there's different entry points. When I, when I went, there was two entry points. There was Straight up A through E level classes, which were five essentially short terms. Uh, I think there were like eight or ten weeks or something apiece um, where you, anyone can sign up. Or they had improv for actors, which I think was only four terms. It was a more advanced program for people that had uh, acting chops already. So I went just into the A through E program. It just cost, you know, 250 or something or whatever it was, or 500 bucks for the X amount of weeks courses. And so you go through the course, whatever it, it, either it's improper actors or the A through E program, when you get through that, then you can audition for conservatory. Conservatory is the program that allows What's you to get to the upper tier classes. So conservatory is kind of the it's like a full year to year and a half okay. program where you have different directors that you cycle between and you work on writing with a core group of people what your SNL is going to be what your 1 hour showcase is going to be
0: Got it. And now let me ask you because you know obviously eventually you end up in the stand up but did you like that type of you know collaborative and creative environment w- working all together?
1: Oh. Yes. Yeah. I mean improv is weird. It's super weird. I mean you can <laughs> you can play, you can be like and when I was younger my sense of humor is much more sophisticated now but of course when I was younger I loved wacky shit. I mean, I really liked weird characters. I, I thought of the most bizarre things and I would just write them as sketches because you had there weren't rules. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be out all night. My conservatory class was on a Saturday. I'd be out all night on a Friday. I'd come hungover, like telling stories about the night before and like work them into routines. I and mean, it was just a whole thing. Um, <laughs> But uh, I loved the support. I'm really close friends with, like, everybody that I was involved with in that That's program. So, so then why mm-hmm. leave improv?
0: Why move to stand-up comedy?
1: I actually wasn't necessarily planning to, but I've never been the type of person that had an A to B to C goal path. Like, I've always kind of built out my career like a sphere. <laughs> so... I give myself a lot of options on a giant, ever-growing surface mm-hmm. area, and so I never, um, I never was like, if I don't make out on SNL, it's curtains for me, curtains. Right. You know, it was more just like, let's see what happens. I got offered some writing programs. I started did my first directorial comedy play during that time, and um, I was intimidated by the idea of stand up. I actually met a stand up comedian bartending across from Second City, and he skipped out on his tab but he had already left his number because he was trying to hit on me <laughs> so i had called him and he was in town Was he bright because like skipping out on
0: the tab and leaving your number is not a,
1: really like like, that's a pretty bad combination right i know i still i i still laugh about it to this day i haven't seen him in years but he's still out in the you know comedy comedy ethos somewhere and um he basically told me how to write up a set. And I said, well, you almost cost me a bunch of money. So I'm going to come to LA and you're going to let me sleep on your couch and you're going to get me a spot. on It's a, a comedy club. And so I did. My first time on stage was 10 minutes at the John Lovitz club in LA.
0: So how did that, how did those first 10 minutes go?
1: Surprisingly good. Um, my first time on stage before that was getting hired to come and MC an event. and it was then that I realized that you you can't just be thrown into that. <laughs> MCing is really hard. <laughs> Wrangling people is really hard, and so I was actually really intimidated to go to LA. But I, I lived in Chicago at the time, and um one of my comedian friends was a male flight attendant, so he ju- got me those jump seat passes. Mm-hmm. So I flew to LA for like thirty bucks. That's awesome. I stayed on at this front at this new friend's couch that I had never met. Rented a car and like went to the Lovitz Club and I had a, I had a good first 10 minutes. I think I still have the tape somewhere. It'd be funny to watch it. I'm sure. Right,
0: that's pretty amazing. Cause you know, just about every stand up I've ever talked to, you know, or even heard from has said like, you know, that first 10 minutes, you know, can be brutal and awful. So for you to actually get up there and do well and have like 10, minutes is, impressive.
1: Ten minutes is a yeah. lot of time. Um, I just wrote stories. Um, And from improv, I at least knew that if you're on stage, you just have to commit. Like you couldn't get on stage and start talking about something and then decide to give up on it halfway through or decide to stop caring about it or throw it away. So I just committed. I committed. They were true stories. It was easy for me to tell. It wasn't like I had to remember jokes because I wasn't writing jokes yet. I was new you're not really writing jokes at that stage, you know? Right. So I was just telling true stories and I couldn't even tell you what I talked about. I have no idea.
0: Uh, <laughs> so what you're saying, you don't um, use that in your act anymore. It's, yeah, it's oh no God, a
1: decade ago? Yeah, that would be... I know people that can do that. I mean, if it's if it's a really good joke, you can keep it around for a decade. I have like one that kind of makes its way into stuff every now and again because it's still one of my favorite jokes. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you you scrap you'd be surprised how much you scrap it's like building a new house every year <laughs> you're like well, i'm done with no, this
0: I, I'm I'm sure it's look any sort of creative endeavor i mean you're you're basically building it from the ground up you don't have you know a team of people there helping you so yeah. you know, look it, just, just getting up there in front of the crowd to perform is you know gutsy in itself because I, personally I can't imagine you know a situation where we're more like publicly vulnerable than that so I mean like way to go for you for doing that.
1: I appreciate that yeah I mean, but we all have to get our sea legs somewhere you know whether it's your first set that you work on or your first time on, on a camera or your first time on a cold set or your first time auditioning in front of casting directors like I mean everything's going to be a first and so eventually you have so many firsts that you stop caring and you're just like, right. this is just what I do now. <laughs>
0: like, so th- then after that first time, so then obviously there's, you know, a next and the next, were you invited back or are you just going to open mics at this point to try to get more? Yeah. Movies?
1: I mean, I was getting some pretty good shows right away in Chicago. Little did I know that's not how it was going to go down once I got to LA. Cause I only stayed after I started standup. I was in improv for three and a half years in Chicago and my, And then I'd only been doing stand-up one year when I moved to Los Angeles. Um, So I had a false sense of what my success would look like in L.A. I mean, I was, you know, my my apartment at the time in Chicago was, this was a decade ago. I mean, I had a beautiful, giant, one-bedroom, hardwood floor apartment in a perfect location for $800 a month.
0: That's amazing. So
1: and I I would get, you know, 100 to $150 a gig only at at a year in. And so I was Mm -hmm. really skew. And then I bartended and they would just let me take off whenever I needed to for shows. I mean, it was just a really great setup. That's awesome. Moved to LA and I had, you know, my show at a comedy store that I got from Chicago that I was running for three years. So that was like my one stream of income. And then there okay. was, like, very few others. So it was really, really scary when I first moved. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, from what I... I mean, the L.A. comedy scene, it's fairly cutthroat. So how yeah. do you then break out from just, you know, your own shows to... From your own show to, okay, now I'm being invited to all of these different clubs. Is it just... You, you've just built up enough of a reputation and get an agent? Or
1: what's that process? It's, it's really nothing about the agent until you're a big name. I mean, because they're they're not making... You know, they'll, they'll help you get exposure where you need to, but they're not going to help you with the daily grind of like getting on the local shows that are really good. It's, it's a combination of reputation, making friends, being out in the scene. Um, a lot of these shows are ran by other comics. So, you know, it's, it's building up that rapport. It's really a community and, mm-hmm. and being a part of it is a big deal. So when you first move to a, a new city or you're first starting out, I mean, part of the job is being just physically at the comedy clubs all the time.
0: Got it. You know? And so, oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, you just have to stay in everybody's faces (laughs) all the time.
0: Well, and you did that, you did that not just with comedy, because, you know, also around, after you moved to LA, you start doing a lot of acting, you're producing, Mm -hmm. you know, when I first met, uh, you had a, uh, you had an indie feature that you were producing at that time. Yeah acted in, you know, shorts and also uh, features and some series stuff. So how, how did, was that just a natural of like, you just need to do more work? Did you have the passion for acting you were going after?
1: I just have always been very business forward. Um, No matter what I went into, I just knew I was going to be, I like to have my hands in it. You know, if there's, if there's something to be created, I want to have my input. And so That's when me and Q, my partner that you had met, started a production company and we were just figuring it out as we went. I mean, I had produced for the stage in Chicago, but film was totally different. Um, But I just wanted to be able to put whatever I could into my own hands so I would feel like I was well-rounded by the time I got where I needed to go.
0: Totally. Totally. And then you, you continue to expand even from there. And, you know, oh, not just, you know, you're producing stuff, but also you got a development deal at one point that you and I... I worked.
1: did. Yeah, at NBC, ironically, because that's where we had met you the first time. NBC, yeah. right? Yeah, Correct. Universal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had been through actually a number of these types of things with different production companies, with um, NBC and Peacock Productions. I had submitted a, a script pitch a pilot pitch and oh god I think this was in 2014 or 2015 maybe um to NBC Playground and we made it to the semifinals. me and my partner and that opened up a lot of doors because we were meeting directly with execs and those people end up moving around to different pieces of the of the different networks and so I got you know yeah I was on a deal writing a number of different things for about two years and they just don't you know it's where you learn a lot being right. in deals like that that it's not going to be your end-all be-all it's a really good process to go through because you realize there is a lot more than just having a contract somewhere you're not guaranteed anything until it's already done and you have an air date you know I,
0: I, I, <laughs> look I get it any, any show that I've worked on like you know I'll always have some crew member come over to me and say look you know is this really going to happen I said look Here's when I know it's <laughs> going to happen. When I'm at home watching it. That's when I know yes, it's Yeah, I know. That's pretty it's much like, like it at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean that's why you just ha- I I cr- that's why I keep such a large profile and I'm creating so much all the time um that you know, cuz I have people that have said that that work in other industries that are like, "Why don't you just focus on one thing?" And I'm like if you only knew how impossible that was, like you wouldn't have, nothing would get accomplished. Right. You Um, kind of
0: can't in this business. It's you, you have to be out there as, you know, almost like marketing yourself as your own brand. And for you, your brand is a very expansive brand because there's a lot that you do.
1: uh Uh-huh. Yes, that's true. And I kind of look at it as a buffet. I'm like, okay, I, (laughs) if I am the chef of, NPH productions. Mm Yeah, I I like to just give you know, I like to be able to do a lot of things. And so I've really taught myself how to do a lot of stuff. I mean, I can, you know, and at this point, that's what makes me valuable. Now, when people want to hire me, they just trust that I can do, I can do on camera, I can do behind the camera, I can have a, I can do directives, I can do, you know, shot lists, I can do a lot of things.
0: Which is awesome, and now one of the other things that you did, and this one went very viral, was your articles for Men's Health. <laughs> what, what I can, I, I can only describe it as comedy modeling, where you know <laughs> the, the, the cheese bikini and the, mm-hmm. uh, the bacon head wraps, and then the uh, annoying activities by guys reenacted. And I'll use your term, <laughs> a super hot comedian. I, so, how do you connect with Men's Health? Because those are they're, they're really fun articles. The the pictures are hysterical. So, what's the genesis? Yeah, of-
1: um, that was just. It's actually. I just was interviewed by the same um, the same uh, author that found me for those mental health articles. He was a former Second City associate as well, named mm-hmm. Eric Spitznigel, and he just interviewed me for Billboard magazine. Um, that uh, the magazine that came out in April. Nice. Um, He was um, a head editor, I forget what his exact title was, for um, Men's Health. And so me and my ex-fiance had shot these pictures thinking they were funny and put them out into the social media world. And he hit me up and said, we want to run these. We we want your, your humor behind it. Would you write articles? And we just worked out a deal. And I did a number of those. And then a couple other magazines started working with me because of that. And um, it was just kind of a fun way for him and I to work together too, because um, my ex is a photographer and very, worked on very, very high-end photo shoots for large clientele and like Vogue and stuff for many years. So it was fun to kind of take that high-end aesthetic yeah. and just make it weird. <laughs> and like really it, it, non-pretentious you know
0: yeah no it's definitely not what you expect when you think of modeling <laughs> shots at all <laughs> no
1: and 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 that's what was fun about it for me and it was just in our living room so it was never like these big productive photos it was just me putting on mascara and like sitting in the living room and we'd be like laying bacon on my head or whatever it was <laughs> um <laughs> so So, and they usually only would take, you know, like 20, 30 minutes to shoot. And then we would just toss them out to men's house and they'd yay and a stuff. And then I'd just write something that went along with the pictures they approved of. It was really fun. Um, But, you know, it's just, it's a fun way to, to understand how being viral with a a photograph or an image or a video, but having the content to back it up can be really important. Um, I think that's something that's really helped me with my image and branding over the years.
0: And then, so let's, uh, move on. Cause I know that you, you're on limited time today. Um, there's, but there's two last things I want to hit on. So obviously yeah. future role model podcast. And so yeah. yet again, you expand into even more stuff. So wh- what made you decide to do the podcast? I mean, where, where did that come from?
1: So I had, The the, going back to the books that I had started writing throughout my teenage and college years, me and my my ex had talked about what I would call that compilation of books and short stories, and we came up with the title Future Role Model, and that's a book that I eventually wanted to release and um, talk about all of the mistakes that I had made along the way and the weird situations I'd put myself in and how they had really just shaped who I am. And then I was like, you know, it would be cool to be able to get other people's stories in that same type of format. So, um, a really big piece of my brand is just highlighting, highlighting being ruggedly classy, as I like to call it. It's okay to have been a mess and make mistakes because they make you really, really good at stuff. And, uh, so I, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed the podcast because I send a very luscious email out to every guest and they'd interpret it however they want you know for the longest time I was just having comics on and now I've expanded to athletes and photographers and and um, now I have some directors and some other uh, fitness instructors coming up just to really expand the portfolio into people that are business savvy that are very successful at whatever it is that they do that are open and willing to talk about some of the terrible stuff that they've been through or done or choices they've made and and how it really made them awesome
0: yeah no absolutely. one, one of
1: my growing up here in wisconsin <laughs> i can't believe i just thought of this but it really says a lot one of the funniest signs i ever saw and it just always stuck in my mind was at my friend's parents house growing up and it just said this beer is making me awesome And that's how I look at life. Like this, this stupid little thing is making me awesome. So like, you know, let it just let it happen and openly talk about it. It's okay to make mistakes.
0: Well, yeah, and and that type of freedom and honesty, I mean, you've had that all throughout your work, and I think it's, you know, one of your uh, signature aspects of what you do, and something Mm -hmm. that, you know, anybody who listens to you can really kind of, you know, latch onto, because we've all made those mistakes in our lives, and, you know, but they, as you described, they are the ones that shape us, you know, you learn from them, that's that's how you move on. So, the last thing I want to talk about today, so you've got your uh, comedy special coming out uh, very, very soon, called I Was Supposed to Get Married Today, which, so you shot this at the venue where you were supposed to get married and yes. so like you were very public the wedding was postponed you guys had broken up um you know what amazed me you turned something like that though into this you know wonderful opportunity so you know how did how did you come to that decision
1: <laughs> you know i mean the the way it played out it was about this time last year when i was landing it was actually today last year that I was landing back in Los Angeles from my self-produced European tour my first one whenever I whenever I really want something to happen I'll make I'll make it happen in some fashion and put it out into the ether that I want it to happen in a better fashion and that's and like putting that out there got me my first um, armed forces tour last year which was the first overseas tour that I did that was produced by somebody else, which was so relieving. Um, So I got to go to Europe twice last year before all this stuff blew up, which is amazing. Um, But I was, you know, in Europe, you know, spending a lot of time with my, with my um, co-headliner, but also by myself, you know, walking through Paris by myself, knowing that my relationship was massively on the rocks and really just living in this space of being okay with being somewhere amazing by myself. Right. And I knew that we had this wedding date on the books. And I knew there was no way we were going to pull together a wedding in two months. There was just not a way. And so I landed from on, on May 5th of 2019. Our wedding was scheduled for June 15th. Mm-hmm. And I just tossed out the idea. I called the venue and I said, listen, I know we already moved the wedding once, Um, we moved the wedding an entire year once already. So they were generous to do that. And so I knew they wouldn't move it again, which they, they would not, we were going to be in the hole like 10 grand in fees. If we just didn't do anything with the space. And I was like, good Lord, if I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to just dump money down the drain. Right. So I renegotiated with them and I said, listen, if I'm going to do this, if I do this bizarre thing, we give your venue some exposure we draw up a new contract. Would you knock the fee down? And I'd be like a venue rental fee. Um, They did. They cut like the fee in half for me, which was amazing. And then me and my director, who's incredible, he lives in LA. He just believed in me, believed in the idea, flew out to Madison, um, shot it with me. We just partnered 50-50 on it, covered the production costs. And um, I... Once we came up with the idea, I had about three weeks before shooting it to prep. So I got to work writing some material specifically for that day that I could only try out at like a handful of shows. Um, And I released tickets to all of the people that were invited to my wedding that I knew had to save the date on their calendar. And I said, invite your friends. These are the VIP tickets if you want to come and eat the dinner with me beforehand that we were all supposed to have as wedding guests. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sold it out. I sold it out. It paid for a good chunk of the production. And um, we just had one take to get it right. And it was was a really great way to take what could have been a really downer of a day and make it something fun my family came out they were sitting front row my maid of honor was there all my you know most of my best friends were there and to me it was just a way to be like it was a really good stamp of uh of me of that essence of like all right, I'm not going to let this bullshit take me down. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, you know? I mean, really, like, it, it's a very strong move on your part. So, I mean, kudos <laughs> to you for that one. And thank uh, you. Oh, no, you're very welcome. And look, I, I know I'm looking forward to seeing it. And I know we've run out of time today. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining uh, me here. Uh, so for anyone listening, you can find Natasha on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NPH Comedy for tickets to upcoming shows. And there actually are upcoming shows. You can visit her website, www.nphcomedy.com and check out her podcast, Future Role Model on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to look out for I Was Supposed to Get Married Today, which is going to be dropping soon. So thank you everyone for joining in today for the Top Rank Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. So please email me at infothetoprankpodcast.com. At again, that's info at the Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and reviews and comments are always welcome. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Rami Rank and stay safe and healthy.